Well, this, this week is our second of, it's our second of three weeks in the Romans chapter 8. And so as we continue this chapter, uh, let me encourage you to spend some time during the week, if you haven't done so already, uh, just reading through Romans 8 over and over again uh, as we piece together these different weeks. It's a long expanse between each week to spend uh, one day and then wait a week, spend another section and wait a week to gather in what's being said here by Paul. But we'll do our best to kind of get folks caught up with where we're at and, and whatnot. Well, later this afternoon, my wife and I, we're planning to go see Barbie. <laughs> we got our tickets. We're ready. And in case anybody's wondering, I saw a lovely pink suit, size 44, down at Kohl's on the clearance rack. So get you're getting ready to go when you get wear size 44. You should get it. I got your outfit. You know, the funny thing is I wear size 44. Mine's kind of... But of course, in seeing Barbie, that won't be the only thing that we see. No, while munching away on those early bites of popcorn and trying to decide if the armrest is going to be up or if it's going to be down, in all that process, on the screen, I'm, I'm anticipating that we're going to see previews. Coming attractions, right? One after another. And you know what? I love that part. I love seeing what's coming out. And I'm sure in that group, there's going to be a, a bunch of duds that are going to show up there. Like whatever that film is about that adolescent Kraken girl. Right, whatever that thing is. Just kidding. Hopefully no one's offended by that. <laughs> that seems like that's going to be a dud. All right. But as we watch those, I'm thinking in my mind, when am I going to go see those? Or when are we going to stream them later on? And the anticipation of their arrival, it offers little bits of joy, even before the movie starts, getting kind of excited about what's coming. And we, of course, capture that in a phrase that we oftentimes say about moments like that where we say, I, I can hardly wait, I can hardly wait for that to come out. Of course, film previews are not the only place in our lives, the only events that conjure up this kind of sensation. Coming holiday celebrations, right? Christmas Eve and getting ready for Christmas, does it? Uh, planned vacations, visits uh, to family and friends that we're looking forward to, the coming acquisition of a pet. There's been a lot of talk in our house about cats recently. There's a lot of little bits of joy that are coming around that. Hopefully that's not too near. <laughs> the start of a, a new school year or a new job, or even the ending of a school year or the ending of a job can bring these little perks of joy. Each presents to us a coming future whose imaginings affect our present thinking and circumstances. When we're in those moments, those little peaks of joy that come out, those little bursts that show up in our lives, they're little things that affect the present, but they're actually talking about a future story, a future narrative in that. Today's scripture reading here in Romans 8, it sets before us the Christian life as something that's moving toward a coming future while saying something about our experience here, right now, in the present. And it does so by drawing on imagery from an ancient story from the past. So note the reference to that older story, story in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. This identity of being God's children is certainly one that is picked up in popular culture, both ancient and modern. We hear this uh, show up in all kinds of different places when we talk about uh, our relationship to one another. I think probably the Probably the, the, the clearest picture of this is not even new, right? If you remember back in the 80s, some of you can't remember the 80s, 
for various reasons, all right? But if you can remember back in the 80s, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson's song, and when I say this, I just say that right now, but when I say that, that's for you that some of you are already starting to get a little excited. Others are forming a, a choir right now because you're going to start saying, we are the world. We are the children, right? We had to memorize that. When I was in elementary school, we had to sing that at like an assembly. It was crazy. But Paul isn't drawing here on this picture of a generally shared humanity. Instead, what he's doing, he's pulling from an older story. Note how God speaks to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 4. And this is that message that Moses is supposed to take to Pharaoh, right? What he says is, Israel is my firstborn son. The Exodus imagery is rounded out, of course, in verse 14, with them being led, which certainly was the reality of these ancient people who were rescued from slavery and then traveling to the promised inheritance. And of course, if that all sounds like a larger extended metaphor for the Christian life, this idea of being led by God and being a child of God, or perhaps even the life of Jesus, the Son of God, who's led by the Spirit into various places, including the wilderness, then you're beginning to hear the murmurings there, the echoes of an interpretive lens from which early Christians, like Paul, would interpret their new life in Christ, or what they understood to be a new exodus that God was leading. Hence, in verse 15, the spirit of slavery to fall back is reminiscent of those clamorings of the ancients upon hearing the reports of the spies sent to investigate the land, and how this people, who were standing just outside their promised inheritance, they were right there in Numbers chapter 14, but they complain, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. They want to return to their chains because they're afraid. And so Paul doesn't want his readers to make the same mistake. Both the readers in the first century, but also us hearers here in the 21st century. So he reminds them, Paul reminds them here of who and whose they are. You've been adopted. You are children of God. But how does one know that your adoption has taken place? I mean, that's, that's fine to say that. You know, Paul can get us all fired up by saying, hey, you're children of God. You're like, yeah, how do I know that's true? Like, how do I know that's even happened? Is there, is there a paper that says that? Where do I get this from? Or to borrow phrasing from last week's sermon, how do we know that this is who we is? How do we know that? How can we know that? Well, if you're a fan of the 1970s Swedish, if you're a fan of 1970s Swedish pop music, I mean, who's not? <laughs> you might have gotten a little bit excited during the scripture reading when Teresa was reading up here when you heard Abba, right? You got a little excited, all right? Not the same thing. Paul says in verse 15 that when we cry out and we pray, Abba, Father, there's a kind of confirmation that comes with this, a bearing witness to who we are. Before we go and try to construct some kind of formulaic passcode for blessing and how we might pray to the divine and get the, anything we want, sort of like rubbing a genie lamp sort of thing. And of course, no one would write a book about anything like that, Jesus, uh, but no one would do that. Sorry, you can only hear that on the recording probably. <laughs> It's worth pausing to consider where this particular prayer comes from, where this Abba Father prayer comes. It's Jesus in Gethsemane. On the night of his arrest, before he's abandoned, before he's publicly mocked, severely beaten, and ruthlessly murdered, he's bearing the heaviness of the hour, knowing what is about to come. 
he prays, and we hear this in Mark chapter 14, he prays, Abba, Father. Paul overlays this same prayer upon the experience of his own experience, but also the experience of his audience at this point. And it lays it on top of our experience too. As we too cry out to God amidst the struggle of the day, that's a witness to our adoption and the Spirit's presence. In fact, according to verse 17, the struggle itself serves as witness to not just our prayer in the moment, that we are in fact children of God. And what we discover here at this point stands in stark contrast to our modern sensibilities. It comes and confronts my suburban desires to be safe, to be sensible, to live a comfortable life, to live a life that's predictable, one where I can have a retirement fund and make plans on the day that I turn 60, whatever. I'm jumping in the RV and I'm heading out of town and it's gonna all work out exactly the way it's supposed to work out, the way that I planned it. Of course, when it doesn't, which is oftentimes the case, we don't only hear stories, but we also see them in our own story. We can be left feeling despondent and adrift as though we have been cheated out of a promised experience. Of course, there's a lot of popular Christian music and Christian literature out there that only serves to reinforce these notions. That faith produces a life of ease in the present and luxury in the age to come when we all get to heaven. Tragedy, even interpersonal struggle and uncertainty can sure undercut that confidence in that narrative, can destroy that system rather quickly. And it can leave an even more devastating effect on us personally. So perhaps we do well to remind ourselves what salvation is achieving. Now, I recall one time I was teaching a confirmation class, and we had this open policy where parents could attend the confirmation class. And I remember this particular week we were talking about uh, what happens uh, in the life to come. After this life, what's to come? And so we're talking about this, and we start talking about salvation. And I asked the class, what are you saved to, and what are you saved from? And I started talking about Revelation chapter 21, uh, the new heaven and the new, new earth. And we're not talking about getting out of here as fast as we can, uh, but we're talking about a renewal of all creation. And this dad looked at me and said, what? Right in the middle of class, what? We had a little bit of a conversation afterwards. I don't think he was ever the same, though, after hearing that. He had something else in mind. He was picturing something else in mind. So let's hear what Paul says here. In verse 17, we also see a connection between suffer with him and glorified with him. Those are somehow connected. Of course, the temptation here is to disavow oneself from suffering and even from those who suffer, to separate ourselves from them, to see these as far from the so-called religious ideal. But of course, this is no license here. We don't want to go too far and say this is license to go look for a fight, or in this case, a beating. It does resonate with Jesus's own words to his followers, that they will be persecuted. They will be persecuted, that life will not be easy for them. And these present struggles are moving towards a coming inheritance. We see that with Paul here in Romans. We note that throughout with language about heirs and inheritance. In verse 18, it doesn't seek to minimize our present sufferings at all. And these can come in many forms and various degrees. We might automatically say suffering in the Christian life, we're only talking about martyrs or we're talking about people who are a direct witness to Jesus Christ and they receive a beating because of that. But there's a larger category of suffering that exists. When your future inheritance is one where you're looking to the renewal of all creation, 
And you're hoping and trusting in that. And day after day, your experience is in the muck and the mire. Just read the headlines. Your life will be in the muck and the mire. That can have an effect on you that can be damaging. It can push you down. And so here we see it's not to take that and minimize present sufferings, but rather it's to emphasize the enormity of what is coming and what is in view. And what is coming according to verses 19 and 20 is the rescue of all creation. The curse of Genesis 3 is to be undone. And what's more, that work will involve the children of God. That's who will be involved in that. And we'll see that next week as we unpack the last part of chapter 8. But here it's a return to the original human vocation. The work of image bearers who faithfully govern and steward creation. That in verse 21, the curse is broken. And as such, creation itself will once more flourish. Or as we hear at the conclusion of Isaiah chapter 55, the thorns of the ground, that's cursed stuff, are replaced by trees and flowers. Or as Paul writes in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is a salvation that not only removes the curse, but which holds centrally a renewed and rescued creation, not a retreat to some kind of distant existence. And it includes a return to the human vocation with God and under God, not an escape from responsibility to one another, not an escape from the creatures or the world in which we have been charged to care. But when will this happen? When will all this happen? I mean, waiting's hard. There's a whole Gerald and Piggy book about that. It's hard. When will this happen? And how do we reconcile our own experience or suffering in this present age? Well, verses 22 and 23 try to speak into that place. It says in Romans, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul here identifies the present time and its suffering with labor pains. And that's an apt metaphor drawn from a very specific kind of pain response. There's some here this morning that know exactly what that kind of pain response entails. And unlike the wailing of a child who has taken a spill, or the shriek of a person who has suddenly found themselves injured in one way or another, the groans of labor pains serve as a specific metaphor here because they not only capture the suffering of the moment, or we say the present here, but they also announce the coming of new life. And that's why Paul draws on it here. And even our first fruits of the Spirit, that metaphor that he draws on here, those first fruits being the initial harvested offering that points to the coming larger harvest. It's a small taste of the larger coming promise. It's a teaser of the larger coming attraction. That's what's happening in those first fruits. And so we wait and we hope and we patiently look to that day that the late Tim Keller tweeted in 2014 when he wrote, when everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. There's a lot of mystery tied up in that. And so we don't have all the answers, but we know what we're waiting for and we're realistic about the world in which we live now. But what about now? What about that day in which we live? Well, Charles Dickens begins his work, A Tale of Two Cities, 
with those now famous words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. And he goes on and on. What Dickens is doing here is he's using a device called duality in his novel. He opens the novel that way, but he then picks that duality up in his characters themselves, that they re represent various degrees and uh, polarities. And we might imagine that we too live in a duality here in our present lives. The promise of coming transformation, but not fully here, not there at least. The best of times and the worst of times. So then how are we to live? Do we keep our heads low, milling about as we satisfy our many desires, seeking to despoil the planet, stripping our neighbor of their dignity? Hardly. That's not what we're called to, and that's not where we're going. So we shouldn't live in that way. Instead, we groan and long for coming redemption, and we join creation in that cry. We hope after what is promised and what is to come. We sow love and generosity, kindness and compassion. We tend to God's creation, our home, as a people who have been crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over the works of God's hands. If that sounds familiar, you're just reading Psalm 8 at that point. In other words, we get back to work. We get back to our original work, knowing what is coming, that coming attraction, but also there is work to be done now, real work, while the feature film is playing, which is our lives today. There's an expression that we have in culture called YOLO, right? You only live once. I wanna change that to YODO. You only die once. We also say live like there is no tomorrow. That's not how we're to live. We live like today leads to tomorrow. That's how we're to live. I was reading a New Yorker article, and I'll close with this, in which it talked about uh, folks who were advocating for access to prescription drugs that can help combat uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's. And they're looking for access, early access to those drugs, because they say, hey, what do I got to lose? Right, I got, I got ALS, I, I might as well take whatever you got and let's see what happens. And they're basing this off of some of the work that was done in the late 80s by folks who were arguing for HIV AIDS uh, release of that, those type of medicines, the same type of argument there. And what happens in, in that is the question that they're asking is, what do I have to lose here? But the bigger question for us to ask today is one that asks, what do you have to gain by living this way? What do we have to gain? And they might be asking that same question in the prescription drug things as well. What's to be gained here? The gain could be the healing of the nations. The gain could be the healing of lives of neighbors and love being truly expressed to one another. The gain here could be the healing of our planet and our resources and our sharing in that. We could join the ancients in this work here where we hope like they did. They are commended for it. But if you read the rest of Hebrews 11, their hope was rooted in action. An action of following and walking day by day towards a great future, their hope, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. That's my prayer for us this morning and for each one of us uh, who hear this word this morning, maybe so today and every day of our lives. Friends, let us pray together.
Lord, we thank you for your love, and we see that love expressed in so many different ways here in this hour, but also specifically here in this text, and even more in the witness of Jesus Christ. And so as we continue to ponder these words, as we enter into a time of giving of ourselves, but also as we gather around the table to receive of that love and that goodness, that grace from you, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue to draw us to those places, that we might be these people, that we might live into that vocation as children of God, those who sow kindness and generosity, compassion and love to all the world. We pray this in your son Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.